Welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, here with an incredible bucket list guest today. I am so excited to have her on the show. Let's welcome Ruta Lee. Ruta, how are you? Oh, to you and all of your followers, thank you for the privilege of being with you. Thank you for the privilege of chatting with you. Thank you for the privilege of letting my voice be heard. Whether anybody wants to hear it or not, we'll find out later. I think we've spent decades enjoying hearing your voice, but it's just me. <laughs> I, uh, you. you know, bef- before we get into stuff, I actually wanted to ask you, I, uh, I'm a big Christmas movie fan. I, I'm not, uh, I, I don't like to think of myself as a hopeless romantic, but I do love the Hallmark Christmas movies and that, you know, that sort of thing. And one of the DVDs that I have is one that you were in called Christmas Do-Over starring Jay Moore and Daphne Zuniga. Uh, as a musician, when I write Christmas music, I find I have to write it in the summertime and living in the desert, it's <laughs> stupid hot, not in the season at all. How is it when you do a Christmas movie? Well, it's the same. You're bundled up in furs and in heavy coats and in plastic snow coming down, and it's hotter than hell, and you're sweating instead of freezing. Uh, but, you know, the Christmas spirit... I think has to live in us all year long. And I sometimes think we forget about that. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 we're reminded of it, of course, at, at the celebration of, of the birth of Christ or Hanukkah, for those of us of, the, of a different persuasion. Um, try to live it all year round. But, you know, it's hard to do sometimes because we all have troubles and woes and, and uh, things that we have to face in daily life. But um, Thank God we all live in America where we can do something about it and somebody will help us if you, we can't do it ourselves. So uh, all I can do is say the Christmas spirit lives with me most of the year. So when, when you're on set and you're, you know, it's it's warm, but you're in a room with the decorated Christmas tree and there's the smell of actual, you know, cookies and all that going on. Do you find it's easy to immerse yourself in feeling like it's really December? Well, you darn well better be immersed easily in whatever you have to be in if you're an actor. True. Uh, You know, you have to pull stuff out of your history and and your past experiences and your past feelings to make it work. So whenever we're doing a Christmas movie in July and it's hotter than hell and uh, we are pretending that there's snow outside, you have to pull on something to do that. And, and, I find it kind of interesting and wonderful to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, it, you're right. It is part of the actor's job to be able to create an atmosphere that doesn't exist. I and mean, that's what the whole point is. But it just, it seems like that would be a reasonably easy thing to get swept up in. And, and then it's over and you're like, oh yeah, but it's only August and Christmas is still four months away. <laughs> well, that's true. Except that you're usually so glad to get the heavy wool sweater off or the heavy wool coat off. And and say, turn on the friggin' air conditioning. We need it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there. And this is something that just occurred to me a couple of days ago when I was thinking about this interview. And um if you if you think back to the days when Norma Jean, the person, became Marilyn Monroe, and the I, I don't want to say process, but I'm sure there was a process of becoming that persona. And I think about your talents as an actress. And I think you could have easily played that role. I think you could have been Marilyn Monroe. Well, I never had enough boobs to be Marilyn Monroe. 
<laughs> because let's face it, Scott, that was part of her glamour. Part the cleavage was very important. Yeah, true. Um, I always say I I have a tattoo on my chest that says, "In case of rape, this side up." That's how little I have when it comes to that kind of stacked glamour. Wow. Okay. But I I really I only met Marilyn Monroe once in my life, Scott. And that was when Frank Sinatra was doing a wonderful birthday party for Dean Martin at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, where Dean was, I believe, performing at the time. And I, as his leading lady in Sergeant's Three, was on location up in Kanab, Utah, which is what, you know, a 45-minute flight mm-hmm. from, from Las Vegas. And so I was invited down from our location. Of course, I, I didn't bring any of the proper clothes for Las Vegas and a big, all-glamorous Hollywood party. I had a little cotton dress, you know, that I, I could wear in Kanab, Utah. And uh, there I sat with John Wayne on one side, um, Milton Berle on the other side, uh, across the table from me, just a, two two seats down, was Elizabeth Taylor, then married to Eddie Fisher. Okay. And, I mean, it was an, an amazing group of stars, and I was awestruck by how lucky I was to be with these beautiful people. And suddenly the buzz in this big showroom died down. And why? Because Frank walked in with Marilyn Monroe on his arm. And you'd think that a thousand watt Klieg light had hit her, but she had this inner glow of some kind where I don't know whether it was the white fox wrap, whether it was the glistening dress, whether it was the the glistening earrings or the glistening platinum blonde hair, but she just brought everybody to a stop and the room just went, oh, gasped when she walked in and she was just so darling and so sweet and really very humble and and she couldn't have been more darling nobody in the world could have been but that was the one and only time I got to spend any time with her and uh, well she just brought me to total awe I couldn't believe it the only other ladies that had that kind of glow were the Gabors Mm-hmm. All the Gabor sisters had it. Yeah. And you know who had it the most? Jolie Gabor, the mother. Really? She had charisma and a glow that was just marvelous. No wonder she taught her girls well and how, how to work a room and how to make herself shine among all the stars there were in Hollywood. That's a lovely story. The closest I can come to that is the first uh, NAM show, the musical instrument trade show that happens every year in Anaheim. And ah. the, fir- the first year that I went, uh, I was downstairs in the, there's a hall where the the newbies kind of go, you know, the people that can't afford the big floor yet. And uh, I was down there and I just heard this, this sound of everybody kind of gasping. And I turned around and Stevie Wonder just walked by me. Oh, very similar, not so glistening, but very similar presence just commanded the room. 
just by walking Isn't by. Isn't that incredible? And and is that because God gave him other senses to work for him? Yeah. You know, he he shorted him on one thing, mm-hmm. but he sure made up for it in in talent. And and I I love to hear that you felt that humility about him too. Yeah, very much so. It was it was a very warm moment, but it was just kind of shocking. I mean, I just turned around and there he was. And he is a big, like physically, he's a big presence. But just you just get a sense of the energy coming off of him. And of course, the the reaction from everybody else, I'm sure, enhanced the, you know, the mood. But boy, that was that was a moment I will never forget. Wow, I love that. I love, I love sweet stories. But I love that you that you appreciated the room that you were in that night. Did you did you not feel that you belonged there? Because you were certainly a big star. I, I was not a big star. I was on my way to becoming a, a more known entity. I mean, I people knew me so much. Thank you, God, for television, you know, uh, because when you spend time with people in their bedroom watching the, the late night shows, I did the Carson show so many times, uh, or daytime uh, on the game shows or the talk shows, and you spend time with people in their living room or their den or their kitchen or their bedroom or their bathroom if they're rich, they get to know you on a very personal level, which was always fascinating to me, that when I met people in person, they didn't say, oh, Miss Lee, can I can I have your autograph? I was kind of a friend and neighbor that they spent time with. Hmm. And they would say to me, hey, Ruta, we're, we're going to do barbecue on Sunday. You want to come? You know, it, that was kind of a wonderful gift that God gave me to have people that liked me and wanted to include me in whatever they were doing and never were terribly shy about coming backstage to say hello or or stopping me on the street. But, you know, Scott, that line between Love and hatred is so fine. And I have to tell you a story that was really interesting because in most cases, I have nothing but love coming at me. And and I, of course, am very quick to give it back and give it out. But I was at a crazy event in Texas, a chili cook-off in Terlingua, Texas, which is uh, miles from anywhere. Marfa is the closest town. Marfa is where Giant was shot. And the only landing strip was either the little one right there in Terlingua where they landed on a dirt strip, you know, that was just for small planes. But if it was a bigger plane, and we had come in in a bigger plane from Los Angeles, then it had to be Marfa. And you had to get out of Marfa on the runway while they, because they didn't have lights. It had to be done before sunset. And the event had gone on longer than anybody expected. And I was panicked because I had to be at work at Warner Brothers the next day. I was doing a, probably a Maverick or something. Mm-hmm. And so I was panicking about how, what was going to happen if we didn't take off tonight. I'd miss my day's work and a job that I didn't want to lose. So somebody said, well, run and see if you can get on one of the private planes that is going to either Houston or somewhere where you can pick up a, a bigger flight right. to, to get you back to Los Angeles. 
And so I'm racing and Rona Barrett's photographer happened to be with me. And I said, come on, we'll see if we can, you know, hitch a ride somewhere. And we're racing like crazy. And a lady grabbed me on the way. And she said, oh, darling, Ruta, I just crazy about you. I just love you so much, girl. And I said, oh, God, thank you for being that way. But I've got to run. I can't talk. I'm trying to catch a plane over there. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope it crashes. What? And I, it went from I love you, I love you, to yeah, I hope it crashes. What a strong bond. Isn't that something? And and wow. I was so furious with her that I smacked her. And she was holding a can of beer, and it went into her face. And I thought, oh, how bizarre to have that kind of thing happen. And I just wanted to, people to remember that if you're stopping someone that at the uh, airport, maybe they're racing for a plane or maybe maybe they've got a car to catch or something's going on. Yeah. And so if someone doesn't have time to be pleasant and wonderful and, and accept your adoration, just let it be, let it go. Well, and imagine if that happened today where there's eight people standing around filming that and it's on YouTube before you even take off and then you exactly. land and your publicist is screaming at you and... Oh. You know, I mean, I don't I I would be terrified to be a public figure. I mean, I am to an extent, but I, I would be terrified yes. to be someone who my job could be dependent on the the way that people perceive me to in this day and age. I would imagine it was hard enough back then. Well, you know, back then it was somewhat easier than it is today, because back then everybody didn't have a camera. Right. And therefore, when somebody says, would you mind holding for a picture? In the old days, there was either a paparazzi to grab it or somebody had their brownie pointed and, and that was it. Mm -hmm. But now everybody has. And of course, invariably, it's OK. Now, let me just set it up. Oh, hang on a second. It's not working. Now. Clyde, do you know how to fix this? You know, and, and you're going, oh, please, can we just get rolling? And uh, it's tough. but. If people care enough to ask you to pose for a picture with them, then you mean something to them. And all I can do is say, God, give me patience if I'm in a hurry and if I'm tired to just say thank you in whatever way it's possible to say thank you to these lovely people. And, you know, I was very blessed, Scott, because I was married for 46 years to a man that was so gorgeous to look at, he was even more gorgeous on the inside. That's and he was a blessing because I do a lot of theater, as you know, and people love to come backstage. And there would be a long line after the show of people wanting their autograph, their program signed with my autograph or whatever. And you naturally you schmooze with everybody. So a two second thing becomes a five minute thing, you know? Yeah. And he was nice enough to say, Ruta, there are a couple of people outside the door here that were just a little too shy to come in and ask you, why don't you come out and say hello to them? Now, that is what the Jews would say is a mensch. It's a good word. It means yeah. a solid human being mm -hmm. that, that cares for others more than he does for himself. He didn't mind yeah. waiting. Well, let me ask you, to, to go back to this woman, do you think that she she turned on you because you couldn't give her the time and, and she didn't 
really grasp that? Or do you think she had an agenda in meeting you in the first place and knowing that you wouldn't come over if she said she didn't like you or something? It was no, like, I'll be no, real I sweet to her. First, I, I think, really? that, yeah, I, I think that it just, she'd probably been into her 14th beer by now too. Okay, Therefore, that's fair. she didn't stop to think. It just, she didn't get her moment with me, you know, or a picture or whatever she wanted and mm -hmm. to hell with me. And that's all there is to it. So. Uh, you know, I think most people are not like that. People are really very, very nicely intended and very sweet when when they meet somebody that they feel that they know. And of course, now, because of television, people do feel like they know you. Right. And I suppose they do feel somewhat upset and put off if you don't give them the time of day, you know. It's a strange relationship, though, because they don't know you. They know the character you're portraying. And, and it is true. I think when you get hooked on a show, especially maybe somewhat with a movie that really touches you, but more, more so a long running television show, you do tend to feel like these people are family. And you get invested in their situations yes. and you you feel like there's, you know, that like this is really happening to real people. But there is a separation between the character that you're putting yourself into and you. So when they meet you, I mean, you're so charming. I can't imagine they wouldn't like you. But I would think that there might be a certain element of disappointment that you're not the character that they see. Well, you see, I felt like I had special privilege in that I did so many game shows, so many talk shows, so many interviews that were aired that people got to know me. And that's why I loved daytime television, especially because I spent a lot of time on it. Yeah. People got to know Ruta, mm -hmm. not the cute young girl uh, that was the mother of, uh, you know, a baby or, or the hooker with the heart of gold and teeth to match mm -hmm. characters that I played, but they got to know me personally yeah. and invited me into their homes and watched a game show, watched me on uh, high rollers with Alex Trebek got to know me, you know. Uh, so I was that was a blessing in many, many ways that, that maybe a lot of other people don't have because they're known as the character that they play. I would agree with that. I think game shows are probably interviews. You're always a little bit guarded or the interviews are directed a lot of times. So it's kind of still a little bit difficult. I think you're right. I think game shows are probably where most people are more relaxed. Mm -hmm. Did you have a favorite of, of all the shows that you worked on? Oh, gosh. Well, of course, I like my own high rollers. Yeah. But but I loved uh, PDQ and uh, that was an NBC show and, and uh, What's My Line? I got to do that in New York a couple of times. Oh, wow. um, I loved anything that I had to participate in. And one of my altogether favorites was there was a show that was uh, the pantomime quiz mm. out of New York that was done here in, in L.A., and uh, Beverly Garland and I were the two girls uh, on opposite teams. And wow, did we have fun doing that. That was that was marvelous. Uh, wow. I also loved You Don't Say. Um, so many great shows that uh, we don't see as many of them anymore. Thank God there's reruns of all of that stuff. Yeah. And so uh, I'm still kind of alive in a lot of people's minds, even though I'm not doing the shows as much now. And of course, I'm no longer a young girl. I'm no, no, I'm still full of energy, thank God. 
sometimes I think it's a blessing. Sometimes I think it's a curse. But but I, I'm really gifted with very, very high energy. And what the hell? I'm 88 years old. And uh, I, I pretend that I'm 28 years old rather than the 38 uh, because I can still do it. But I don't do the leading ladies anymore. Mm-hmm. Now I can do more character things. But I also don't want to play little old wizened ladies, even though I am one. But I just don't feel like the character suits me, and I just yeah. don't want to play them. Yeah, so and, and still... so I picked the one movie where you were listed as the grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, yes, I, that was the the Christmas movie, right? But yeah. you're, but you know, when when you and I talked yesterday, when you called me, the first thing, the first impression I got from you was you are just full of vibrant energy, and I love that right off the bat. Thank you. Yeah. And, and and I thank God. <laughs> well, and I think I, it's it's sad that we do have these bracket perceptions of well, you know, you're this age, your hair looks this way, your you know, your eyes look this way, or whatever. We we bracket people into those things, and there is a certain element of it that's understandable. But there's also, I think, a lot of boundaries that are undiscovered, things that we could do that we just don't because we pigeonhole everything. Well, you know, I stop and think that I I love I love television because. One hello is heard by millions and millions of people. Ah. I love movies because time and care, more time and care than television is taken in putting together every frame and every shot and, and the lighting and the sound and the everything is worked on. And so you get a more finished and a more beautiful product. But of everything, I really like live performances, especially musicals, Mm. on stage. There is nothing as wonderful as that live animal called an audience that lives and breathes and laughs and cries and pisses and moans with you. Mm. And to get applause at the end of a scene or to standing ovation at the end of the show, and then to get money at the end of the week. Wow, that's what a pretty damn good, Scott. It is. But, you know, here's the way that I look at that, because I've worked on some plays here in Vegas, and I've noticed a big difference when I work on a film, if I'm doing a film score or if I'm doing, you know, an album or a piece of music for something, I don't get to interact or connect with anybody enjoying what I've done. And I would imagine it's the same with television and film for you. Right. But you get an immediate satisfaction by seeing that your work is affecting people. They're crying with you. They're laughing with you. They're, you know, applauding at the end of a, a number. That's got to be just so much better. But on the flip side of it, television is taped. Movies are taped. People can watch them over and over. But so many plays and music are not taped. And when it's over, you don't have something to go back to and remember those times. How right you are. And it was very illegal for anybody sitting up in the third balcony to pull out their little video camera or whatever they had. These days with telephones, uh, you can do it. Nobody notices. Yeah. Um, I mean, they'd ask you to leave. You That, that was a no-no. Mm. And I'm so sorry it was a no-no because it's just the bootleg things where you can see Mary Martin 
or Ethel Merman that was not recorded, you know, yeah. uh, like Peter Pan or, or Annie Get Your Gun or something, uh, that that was the only thing you got to ever see that in person, uh, unless you were uh, lived in New York or were able to get to New York and had the finances to to do that. It was just those bootleg things that gave you an idea of of what it felt like and what it looked like and how did she play it and and who said what to who. Oh, oh, I'm grateful for those that I was able to see a few to few of them many yeah. many years later. We've uh, had so many amazing because, performances that were just wow, lost, what lost to time. You know, um, I'm glad that you got to experience that though because I think. A career in film and television can be great, or even game shows because you're in front of an audience, but that's a little bit different. Um, I, I think it could be such an isolating profession because you really, other than reviews, which are so subjective and usually written by people that want to say bad things anyway, you don't really get that experience. Well, you're so right. And and I don't know of anything that is more rewarding than a live performance. And of course, Scott, you as a performer know that audiences vary tremendously. And I keep saying, is it the climate that day? Did they get out of the wrong side of the bed? What happened? I mean, you can be in a show and you know where the music is going to raise you and lift you and the audience will applaud. And, and, and you know uh, in a comedy where the big laughs are and how to hold for them and what to do. And there will be sometimes you say, what the hell am I doing wrong? Yeah. Where is that audience? Why are they not laughing? Why aren't they applauding? What's wrong? And you'll go backstage and say, am I, am I off tonight? Or is it another? No, it's a really weird audience. And I, I have often wondered what makes an audience great audience? Well, yeah. Well, here's the here's the thing. So you have a joke in a show or a little thing that's supposed to make people laugh, right? Whether it's a visual gag yeah. or whatever. And the last seven performances, the whole audience went nuts. And on performance eight, two people coughed and nobody it's a it's almost like it's a collective thing. Uh -huh. Somebody went and found a group of people that wasn't going to find that funny and put them all in the room at the same time. It's not half the audience. It's not two or three people. It's it's almost a collective experience. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So it makes you question, what did we do that made this not land? Because nobody got it. When you didn't do anything different. I don't understand. It's fascinating to me. There's a town. I can't remember now. I'm, I'm doing a blank on the name of it. Up um, in the kind of the northwestern end of the United States that I played. Big town. And I remember, I'll, I'll call you at two in the morning and I'll tell you. Okay, okay. I'll be up. Um, I remember that Colonel Parker said when Elvis was going to play there, if any act can survive this town, it will be a hit anywhere in the world. Okay. And the town, I remember we played and the opening night I this I went through this. What are we doing wrong? Why? And we played this this show in a lot of different places. What is wrong? What is wrong? And we wondered where the laughs were, why they weren't coming. Mind you, at the end of the show, the audience gave us a probably a five minute standing ovation. Nice. They loved the show, but the ladies 
sat behind their programs like this going. And the men were going. And not a sound came out of anybody. That's so weird. I was just so floored. And the reviews were spectacular that it was a funny show. And I, how do they know it's funny? Nobody laughed, you know. It was <laughs> so, really bizarre. So but, was was the theory right? Was it a successful show? Very. Very. But but it was just a town that was not used to laughing out loud. And that's wow. all there was to it. That so, sounds more like an episode of The Twilight Zone than, than reality. <laughs> Oh, now you're talking about one of my altogether favorite shows in the world. I loved playing that little tramp. I just loved it. You know, the girls that are a little trampy uh, are so much more fun to play than the than the goody two shoes. You know, sure, yeah. Well, you get to expand a little bit. And, oh, and yeah. Be a little more playful. That was one of my favorite shows. The the you're always waiting. You're trying the whole time to figure out what the twist is going to be right at the end. When it wasn't the, that wonderful? A short drink from a certain fountain. It was called, mm. and I love it. I just loved it. Uh, and I got to play this little sexy bitch of a girl that was married to a much older man, a wealthy man, mm. and. Uh, she was a, the put down queen, you know, come on, move. Yeah, you know, she right. was not not nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the my husband. Is the brother of a doctor who has been experimenting scientifically and he gets a shot that makes him get younger, younger and younger and younger. And she winds up. With having to take care of a baby if she wants the comfortable life and the money. And what what a treat that was. And of course, our writer. Um, Rod Serling. Rod, Rod Serling yeah. was a darling man. And- uh, Did he direct that episode? No. He didn't, okay. Um, I can't think of the director's name now, but he was wonderful. And during this, filming of the scene it was at mgm we the the company shot at mgm um i got an ovation from the guys in the catwalks you know that are up there aiming the lights and doing the everything mm-hmm. and after a scene was on they, they applauded like crazy that that's a great treat when someone on the set thinks enough of your work to kind of you know give you applause yeah. And I looked up and they waved their arms down and said, we love you, honey. You oh, remind boy. us of our favorite. And I said, who's that? They said, Carol Lombard. Wow. And so I was at her studio and those old poops up there, they've been around since Carol Lombard's days, you know. And I thought, what a great compliment. Yeah. Uh, well, working I mean, just... at MGM was just like going home all the time because... Yeah. My first movie, Seven Brides with Seven Brothers, was was shot at MGM. And then I, I went back to do um, uh, Gigi, not Gigi. Uh, oh, my God, I forgot. Gabby, not Gigi. Gabby, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gabby there. And I did a lot of television stuff that was shot there. Sure, so yeah. it was always like going home. That's wonderful. W- let me ask you, was it um, when you got the role on The Twilight Zone, Mm-hmm. Was that 
like, oh my God, I'm going to be on the Twilight Zone? Or was it, okay, I'm doing the Twilight Zone? Was it, no, was it casual? It was, it was okay. I'm doing the Twilight Zone because I was working a lot then. And those were the good old days when producers and directors gave casting directors the nod. And the casting director would say, well, do you want a blonde, a brunette, or a redhead for this scene? And then it would be up to one of us that are doing a lot of television and a lot of movies, and we'd get cast. And the script would get sent to the house, do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to go in and meet anybody. Well, on occasion, you did if it was something very important, you know. Mm-hmm. But I got the script, and of course, I loved it, you know. And and uh, Rod Serling was a brilliant genius. He died way too young, and he died, I think, killing himself because I adored him. And the few times that I met up with him and in New York or wherever we happened to be and went out for dinner with him, I knew I could never have a romance with this man because it was one cigarette going out and another one being lit before this one went out. And he smoked himself to death. And it just kills me because he was so brilliant and so charming and so handsome and so adorable and so rich. He really, you know, even just doing the the, uh, openings to the Twilight Zone, you really got a sense of uh, class and confidence. He really carried himself well. Stop and think of the things that he wrote about that are all part of our life today. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's the thing that really dazzles me about science fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, With him, it was more science, not fiction, but science truth. So many things we're living with now that didn't exist then that he talked about and wrote about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it, it was also an experiment, I think, in the human condition, the way people react to each other, the way that they try to gain power or, or, you know, something over each other or just try to get ahead in life above somebody else. But it was the irony that always got me. You know, Burgess Meredith finally gets his time and then he breaks his glasses kind of uh, every episode. I'm just sitting there going, what's it going to be? And trying to figure it out, you know. And um, as I've gone back and rewatched every episode of that show, it still to this day amazes me how ahead of its time it really was. You know, I got to know Burgess Meredith quite well, not during that period. It was years later. Uh, He was very, very much involved in the food and beverage industry as a critic uh, and as a a former restaurant owner and so on and so forth. He had a restaurant with um, Gloria Swanson. Really? In the hills, the mountains above Palm Springs place called Idlewild. And uh, I got to know him when we were on the cover of uh, one of the food magazines. Uh, And gee, I liked him. He was a darling man with a wicked sense of humor and uh, a love of, of theater and a love of entertaining and certainly good food and good booze is part of entertaining, you know. Sure, yeah. And uh, uh, it, it was a pleasure to to spend time with him and know him. Uh, and yeah. 
There's another one. Too many of the, the greats that we all grew up with are gone. Yeah, and I'm so sorry that, but thank God, old movies are still around, and yeah. the now generation uh, gets to meet some of those beautiful people that I got to know in person. The only, well, of course, I know Burgess Meredith mostly from the Twilight Zone sure. episode and and the Rocky series because he was, you know, the first three films he was in, and and I just I remember thinking, God, this guy is so talented. He really is. And I just felt a genuine, like you can tell when an actor's really a good person or if they're really not a good person and they're acting. If you're a good actor, I shouldn't be able to tell you're acting. You know, you it should be believable that you're playing, you're who you are in the movie or film. You yes, know? yes. Uh, but he's one of those people that I thought, I bet he would just be fun to sit down and have a beer with. Do you think that your musicality and your sense of tone has something to do with reading the tone and the attitude that people present? I think so. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I, even, even as a child, I, I don't know if it's, you know, some people say it's an energetic thing and some people say it's a, you know, a psychic connection thing or whatever. To me, I just get a sense of people. And I'm usually right. It's when I let my brain talk me out of things like, oh, you know, she says she's a bitch, but she's probably, I'm sure she's fine. <laughs> no, it, just listen. <laughs> if that's yeah. what they tell you, just listen and walk away. Uh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would assume that that gift of yours, that that sense of more than just the sound of music, but the feel of music. Uh, is terribly important. Uh, well, clearly it is. You're using it in your life in more ways than just writing music. Now, tell me, where does everybody get to hear your stuff? Oh, I'm, I'm you know, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, being a bitch. I'm a bitch to publicity. I am everywhere. Spotify, my website, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you some stuff if you like. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I would. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. And it's it's a variety of stuff for film. Uh, and pop, you've rock, written jazz. scores for films. I have, yeah. I mean, nothing, not major films, not anything. Well, they Hollywood, don't have but, to be major, no. Yeah, uh, but that's that's fun because you get to do a real variety of things that you wouldn't necessarily write. Like I wrote a score for a, a 1940s style movie and, uh, you know, using like a muted trumpet and things that I probably wouldn't have ever written that style of music. Otherwise, my grandfather would have loved that because that that was definitely his his era, the big band days. And and that he used to he used to make me play to uh, Benny Goodman records. And I'm sitting here wanting to play Deep Purple. And, and he's like, no, no, no. But but listen, just listen. And, you know, I really wish I had. I wish I had had the foresight at age 11 or whatever it was to really understand what he was trying to teach me because I could have been a much better drummer and a much better musician had I known at the time what the benefit would have been. Ah, uh, yes. Well, you know, I have great admiration and um, a bit of jealousy, too, for the people that write the jingles for commercials. Wow. Some of those commercials we have, haven't forgotten musically from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s all mm. the way through. You know, you, you, you see the USA in your Chevrolet. My God, yeah. who could forget that? 
And if if I say let's go out to the lobby, don't you just see Candy dancing and hear yes, that little jingle? Yes, yes. Yeah. And does the writer still get a royalty on that, or does the family? It depends on the contract, really. Uh, uh, I think most of the time they're just done for hire with probably a, a certain percentage of, you know, we're going to do X amount of commercials, so we'll pay you X amount for it. But I don't think anybody really thought that uh, commercial music, and, and I mean commercial in the sense of advertising, would ever be something that people would put on an album as a collection of of nostalgia or anything like that. And that stuff is you know readily available now. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't think it, it's kind of like Gilligan's Island, not sent, not signing syndication deals because it didn't really exist. That's right. I think it's kind of the same thing with commercials. I don't think anybody really thought more of them than here's our campaign for, you know, 1963. Well, that's what put us into the huge SAG strike mm-hmm. was the future and what it holds with AI, artificial intelligence. And, and uh, you know, that that's uh, scary as hell. And uh, I, I don't know. We were talking earlier about what is the union going to do in the next two or three years when the next contract comes up for renewal? Yeah, I think they have two and a half years before the next negotiation, Fran said. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think, and, and you've seen all the things that have happened over the years in this industry. So you would know far better than I would. But to me, it seems that this is the biggest and most important negotiation that has ever been had because of the technology and what the studios were trying to do with it, saying, hey, if you're a background actor and we have you on film once, we have the right to take your image, use it however we want, never pay you a dime, and good luck in, in your waitressing job. I hear you. I don't I don't understand the concept of biting the hand that feeds you. Yes, you're the ones with the money, but if you don't have the actors. That's right. I don't want to go see digital replications of actors. I want to know that real people shot that on a real set. Yes, with with real mouth, real heart, real soul yeah. and and real effort put into it. I agree. You know, all through these years since I joined the guild, you know, back uh, my first job, I believe was a Burns and Allen, George Burns and Gracie mm. Allen show that got me my union card. Love Burns and Allen. Oh, the the dearest, most wonderful people. And they were so good to me because I was just a teenager and, and they would invite me to some of their big, grand, garden-filled cocktail parties, you know, and, and I would be permitted a, a glass of wine and, and they didn't think mm. twice about it. They they were very dear to me. And, and even after when Gracie was gone, George Burns came to every Thalians event. You know, that's my favorite subject in the world is the Thalians. Yeah. Uh, and he would sit at my table and I always felt like he did me a, a great kindness by putting his very popular, well-known big star butt in one of my chairs <laughs> at my table, you know. But wow. from the first day, I mean, I didn't think I was overpaid when I got my minimum, whatever it was. but. In the long run, I think that there is a tremendous inequity, and that is that great stars who certainly have worked their way up and done dishwashing jobs and everything else in the process are getting salaries that kings and queens don't earn, you know? Yeah. Well, they are kings and queens of the industry, but I sort of feel like the little guys are sort of a little bit left out. 
And I think we're highly overpaid, like sports figures. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I'm mad as hell at my union at this point because I, as I told you, I'm 88 years old. For 70 or more years, I have been paying my guild dues, which varied depending on how much I was making, you know, through the year. Right. And just two years ago, the guild decided that those of us who are over 65 are no longer entitled to our medical and hospitalization. What? You heard me. We no longer get it. Get it wow. on your own. Oh, and that is wow. not the time to go shopping. Yeah. Not when you're in your 80s. No, because anybody that you sign up with at that age is going to be the highest possible premium, That's right. right? And so I am angry beyond words. So wait a minute. They didn't the union would do this to us. They didn't grandfather in people that nope. had already been paying in the whole time? Nope. Now, see, if they... Nope. It would still be wrong to me, but if they had decided, okay, as of this date, people that join as new members, by the time they get to this age, they're not going to be covered. I could understand that as a policy. I wouldn't I like it, too. but I could at least understand it. But to say you're going to have this and then go, eh, now that's it. Good luck in life. And After you've been faithful and paying your, oh, screw that. My uh, darling girlfriend, Stephanie Powers. Oh, I love Stephanie Is the Powers. head of a committee now that um, is trying to do something about it. But in the meantime, uh, I've had to get my insurance elsewhere. Are you, so, were you able to, to secure something? At yes, at, at a very Maybe. high cost. And, and I think how unfair. Oh, yeah. I don't take advantage. I mean, yes, I had hospitalization all through the years when I didn't need it. Right. You know, how often did I use it? Yeah. And, not, and, not at all. But, it, you know, so, I've heard ever since I was a child, and I was born in 1972, and I remember even... You are a child. <laughs> thank you. I don't feel like it. But, uh, you know, five, six years old, I remember hearing Social Security is not going to be around when you're old right. enough to collect. I've always heard that. And I thought, that just doesn't sound fair. If I've paid into it, I should be able to collect from it. That's a benefit that you know, it, it's it's there. If I pay my dues, why shouldn't I be able to collect it? None of that is has ever made sense to me, the way that we have things set up. And if you look at what you were saying about, you know, certain actors being overpaid or certain athletes that that are making, you know, even, even a league minimum guy makes six figures. Uh -huh. And he might be sitting on the bench for half the season. I mean, we're so imbalanced. It just, it, it, it none of that's ever sat well with me. I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, I, I can understand that you work your way up into a glory spot. But um, uh, uh, somehow, and I don't mean to take anything away from them, but, but I don't know why somebody should be getting a million dollars a show uh, when the person standing next to them uh, is trying to work their way up and, and they're getting book kiss, you know? Well, I still think it's, you know, really pathetic that it's 20, almost 2024 and we're still fighting over whether men and women should get paid the same for doing, I mean, 
I, I don't understand any of it. But let me let me ask you this because sure. I I read something when um, Demi Moore did uh, GI Jane. I think that was the movie, and she got however many millions of dollars to do it. And somebody wrote up a breakdown of what it cost her to do that movie. So you've got the here's what I got paid. And then here's what it costs for promotions and all that. And they yeah. broke down, you know, manicures, pedicures, outfits, all these things for presentations that she had to do or red carpets. And I thought, but if you're at that level, aren't you getting dresses from most of those from some vendor that wants you to wear their thing at the red carpet? And I don't think that the cost is anywhere near balancing out that paycheck. The cost basically is that there are dibs of 10, 15, 20% on your salary mm -hmm. that you earn. First of all, the income tax is enormous. Yeah. Then your agent takes 10%. Your manager takes 15 or 20%. Your publicist takes 15%. Um, now put in the others, your housekeeper, your, your uh, driver, your whatever that that you have to pay for, not that right. the, the the company pays for. Mm -hmm. On a film, sometimes all that's picked up. Yeah. But your salary is suddenly diminished to a small percentage that you get to keep. Right. So it does make a difference. But um, in most cases, the the secondary actors uh, don't have publicists or managers they have an agent that pro procured the job for them right uh but but not those other people that that are absolutely essential to making your life work you know a business manager uh, yeah. besides being a theatrical manager yeah. it's so many people have to yeah. be involved to make it work and uh, I, I'm curious, because uh, I, I want to talk to about talk to you about this Gary Sinise event. Um, but oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I kind of mentioned this before we started recording. And, you know, um, Mark Wahlberg has left L.A. A lot of people are moving out of L.A. because of the it's just now it's gone beyond ridiculous to live there. And he's moved here. He's opening up. He's trying to open up a film studio. I'm wondering if. They shouldn't spend the the Actors Guild shouldn't spend the next two and a half years, and maybe even the writers getting involved with this. I don't know because they're kind of in the middle ground. But to say we can talk about renegotiating with the studios, or maybe we don't need to make eighty million dollar films every film. Maybe we can take a movie like you made, Christmas Do Over, and we could do it on a reasonable budget. We can raise our own money or get our own investors that don't need to invest a huge amount of money to make a film successful because you're really talking 160 million with advertising. So I think that they should really take the next two and a half years and look at potentially renegotiating with the studios. But after the attitudes the studios had this year, I think they should really find a way to start making another way to make films, kind of like not independent, but not studio film, something a new thing kind of in the middle of those two. An AI film. <laughs> well, no, I really would love to get away because I don't want to see that. Well, you know, there are so many companies now scattered in Florida, in Tennessee, in, in Texas, certainly. Uh, and now Las Vegas, not a bad idea. I also think that besides negotiating with the producers, that we need to negotiate with the California 
legislature and government because our taxes are out frigging rageous. Yeah. And to make a movie and to keep it home and in the state and for the city to keep it in the city, they need all kinds of variances on taxes and, and you know, privileges that they will be given. I mean, Hollywood used to be much easier to do a film in. Yeah. I was at an event uh, Sunday where uh, Kathy Garver was doing a, a reading of a, a book. And it was in the first studio that existed in Hollywood. And it was, it's across the street from the Hollywood Bowl. And it was a barn. It needs its roof redone now. They're keeping it as a, as a scientific place, you know. Mm-hmm. First movies are made. And uh, our wonderful uh, director, uh, DeMille, his first studio was there. His wow. first office was there. Mm-hmm. And, and it was kind of a, a privilege to be in it. But stop and think. Hollywood had movies made in it. Why? Because it was easier. Right. The sun was shining. It didn't rain often. You shoot outdoors. You had great light. Uh, you had the privilege of using almost any street, any place that you needed. And we don't have that anymore. Everybody yeah. has their finger in the pie. The mm. city wants money for this street and to send somebody to, to to clean it up and to take care of it. Boy, do we need a lot of cleanup in L.A. Oh, anyway, well, I we think it used that. to be the movie industry and now it's the movie industry. Talk about industry. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that and and you know you mentioned we mentioned Loretta Sweat earlier. Talk about uh, utilizing places. They just shot Mash out in a park. I mean, it was it was cordoned off, uh-huh. but I mean, they're just in California. They didn't go overseas for that. It's just right. a, a place in California that they made to look like it was overseas. Amazing what they can do with a little bit. Or you you have a B unit come out to Vegas and you do a couple of establishing shots to make it look like all your inner office scenes are taking place at Caesar's Palace. You know, it's amazing the the beauty of the magic of film, I'll say. And I'm yeah. so sorry because we have run over our time. Do you have do you have a couple minutes to talk about the uh Gary Sinise event? Yes, I do. I, I'm so sorry. I really all I have frankly respectful That's... of that. So tell me about that. Well, of course the Thalians have I talked to you about the Thalians? The Thalians is, first of all, I'll spell it for everybody, T-H-A-L-I-A-N-S dot mm-hmm. org for us. The Thalians dot org. Go to it and you'll know a little bit about us. But it was started by a group of young Hollywood people that got tired of being called hard-drinking, pot-smoking, sex-minded asses that had nothing to contribute to society. And they said, you know, we hang around the piano and sing and dance and carry on. Why don't we put a little show together and sell tickets and and make some money for a worthwhile charity? Okay. And they sent out Jane Mansfield and Mamie Van Doren. Talk about boobs galore. Yeah. To get out there and find a good charity. They cornered the bra market, those two. And they came back saying, well... All the good diseases have been taken. (laughs) And so we have found a man that is dealing with emotionally disturbed children, a doctor that explained that it was 
like a rotting apple in a barrel. If you didn't take care of it, it would infect the entire barrel if you didn't take care of an emotionally disturbed child. So the Thalians assumed that, and the Thalia was one of the Greek goddesses, a muse, Mm -hmm. and she was the goddess of comedy. Mm. But she also took care of straying lambs. So that seemed like very appropriate name for us. Yeah. And so we did shows and and had and honored stars from Frank Sinatra through Debbie Reynolds, our our founding person, uh, my and my sister in charity and my my dear love, uh, through uh, oh God, just name anybody, you know, everybody in our business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we honored all kinds of people and. It built the first building that went in at the clinic or at the hospital, the Cedar sinai uh, big, fabulous hospital. And our building was the first building. It was the Thalians Community Mental Health Center. Wonderful. And we dealt from pediatric through geriatric patients. Then about 10 years ago, more or less, a friend came to me. And said, Ruta, you know, you're missing the boat with the Thalians. And I said, what is that? Because the Thalians were shining a light, spotlight, a Hollywood spotlight on that dark abyss known as mental illness and hopefully bringing it into the light of healing, getting it out of the closet and into talking about, into people's minds and psyches. so that it was no longer the hidden disease. Mm. And he said, you're missing the boat. And I said, well, how? And he said, you're not doing anything for our veterans. Mm. And I thought, wow, how right he is. These are the beautiful young Americans, male and female, who are willing to put their lives on the line in any hellhole in this world we send them to. And yet they come back and sometimes... They don't get the best America has to offer. They fall through the cracks and they disappear or they're homeless. Mm -hmm. We have to do something about it. So we focused our attention on the returning veterans. And we joined up with UCLA's Operation Men. Operation Men heals the broken and fractured bodies of our beautiful returning veterans. And we Thalians deal with healing the broken and fractured mind and spirit of our wonderful young people. And I'm so happy to say that we've honored some of the finest people in the world. And to me, honoring Gary Sinise, not only a brilliant actor, but he and his, not Colonel, Lieutenant Bad. Lieutenant Dan, Dan, yeah, from Forrest Gump, right. From Forrest Gump, have done so much for our American veterans, and he travels everywhere and does so much. Uh, he was probably the most, the most deserving honoree we've ever had. Uh, and I, I sent a note to darling Clint Eastwood saying that this man was filling his shoes, and I'm sure he's very happy that a Gary Sinise would step into the same shoes that Clint Eastwood had. And I have to tell you, it took me 20 years of pleading 
with Clint Eastwood to get him as our honoree. He's so reticent about doing public things like right, that. Yeah. Well, and I love your tenacity. Turned out to be just the best. He was wonderful and humble and adorable and funny and gracious to everybody. And as was Gary Sinise. And uh, well, now we have to plan next year's. And who are we going to honor? Wow. It'd be interesting know. to see, but I love that you're doing that. That is so important as and as we're navigating the ever-changing world. And we were really just scratching the surface of mental health issues, I think. And it's so important that because it filters down to everything. The work you do, whatever it is, whether you're an actor or an entertainer, or you work in an office building, everything starts with your mental health. How right you are and how blessed we all should be. And thank the spirit that guides everything um, for the whatever we have in, in any kind of health. But I frankly think that mental health is the one that is the most important because you can deal with aching arm or, or a bad heart or whatever. You can deal with it. You know what to do. Mm-hmm. You can get advice on what to do. When you are mentally unstable, oh, you just don't know what's good for you or anybody else. And uh, just be grateful, everybody, for what we have. And a broken arm, you can get an x-ray. You can get a very simple and accurate diagnosis. With mental health, there are so many moving pieces. There could be so many different things that you won't even know about until you clear one thing. Then you can identify some. I mean, there's it's an ongoing battle. So thank you for helping fight that. That really means a lot to me. Well, and, I'm so uh, delighted to have the privilege. And of course, I thank my Debbie Reynolds because she was one of the founding members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, let me think there. Who else? We've had some wonderful people. Donald O'Connor has been president. Mm-hmm. Hugh O'Brien was our first president. Wow. And, and someone you'll know, Margaret Whiting. Fabulous oh, yeah. singer Margaret Whiting was our second president. Wow. Uh, Debbie was third. Donald O'Connor was fourth. I follow Donald O'Connor and have been either president or chairman of the board for 40, 50, almost 60 years. <laughs> wow. That's pretty wild. Yeah, it is pretty wild. But amazing. Debbie and I had exchanged roles, but she taught me something wonderful, Scott. And I will leave everybody with this thought okay. and wishing everybody a beautiful, happy holiday season. Yes. Debbie said, Ruta, don't be afraid to ask anybody in this world for anything that is needed, just so long as it isn't for yourself, but for your charity and for people who need it and can't get it for themselves. And it's something that we should all live with. Don't be afraid to ask for something if it's not for yourself. And if it is for yourself, ask nicely and you will receive. I love that. What a perfect note to end the show on. Ruta, thank you so much for coming on. You have just been amazing and so generous with your time. Please feel free anytime to come back and, and have a chat. I love you, my friend. And thank you for being my friend. Thank you for letting me talk about the Thalians, which is very important. And anybody that has extra dollars after Christmas, it's a wonder if anybody has any money. But if ever you have a few dollars, whether it's $5, $500,000, 
just go to thephalians.org and punch in and donate. And all I can say is, remember the title of my book applies to you. Consider your ass kissed. Right. And uh, for those of you, that link will be in the show notes. All you have to do is click it. I'll even make it that easy for you. How cool is that? Ruta, thank you so much. I hope that you have a beautiful rest of your day. And thank you for all that you have given us. It's been amazing. God bless.